Hey everyone, this is Chad Harms, the pastor of Creekside Bible Church. Thanks for taking some time to listen to our latest sermon. A sermon on a story from the Bible containing people's first impressions of Jesus. It will play in just a minute, but before it does, I want to invite you to do two things. First, if you haven't done so already, please subscribe. We put out a new sermon every week and we're going to upload some bonus sermons soon. I think I already told you about that. We have the first sermon I ever preached at our church 16 years ago, a sermon I preached from the only pulpit Martin Luther King Jr. preached from in Oregon, and some other sermons I preached at different places as a guest. So please subscribe. The other thing I'd love for you to do is connect with us on social media. We think it is awesome that our sermons get listened to by a lot of people around the world. We think it is awesome that you are one of those people, and we want to connect with you. One of the best places to do that is on Instagram. Our church's username is CreeksidePicks, and I'm Chad A. Harms. I mean it when I say we want to connect. It would be great to be able to see your faces, even if it's just on a screen. Again, thanks for taking some time to listen to this sermon. I hope that it will help you learn and live more fully for the glory of God. Hey, great to be here. This has been kind of a busy day for Diane and me. We, uh, we actually started our day in Lincoln City, and I got to preach at Faith Baptist Church there two times. So this is, uh, this is a treat for me. Yeah, this is my preaching Sunday. So I'm, I'm really thrilled. Really, I am. Uh, the text that Chad asked me to preach on is uh, John chapter 1, verses 19 through 34. Uh, it's um, a text that I have taught on numerous times through the years. It's, it's the text about John the Baptist and that um, it's, it's the Apostle John's account of John's early ministry when he was just getting his ministry started and he was confronted with the religious leaders who were questioning him about the legitimacy of his ministry and trying to figure out who he was and why he was doing what he was doing. And, and then uh, John announcing Jesus uh, to the world, uh, to his disciples first, and then to the Jewish nation as the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world, their Messiah. And uh, so it's, a, it's an interesting text in, in, uh, in the sense that it tells us that John the Baptist basically had a twofold ministry. Uh, he came to prepare God's people for the coming Messiah and he was tasked with the challenge of locating and identifying the Christ. So those are the, so, you know, you teach on that, it's one thing, but to develop this text homiletically for a sermon is a whole different animal. And uh, I have been preaching, I, I, I shared this uh, earlier, that I've been, I've, I've been preaching for 40 years. I know, Wow. Mike, yeah, wow. I didn't know you were that old. <laughs> I started when I was two. So I'm 40. No, I'm not. Um, but, but I preached for a long time. and I've never preached on this text. I've never developed it homiletically. So this was actually a challenge because Chad said, I want you to preach on this text. And I remember when he first gave it to me, I went to the Bible, opened it up, looked at it, and I thought, Really? That's a sermon text. Well, okay. So, but I think, I think we've got a way forward with this that's going to be helpful 
for us. And I want to dive into it by way of reflecting on the fact that whether we like to admit it or not, most of us have been brought up in a world and in family systems that prioritize happiness as the main pursuit. Uh, now, we don't necessarily make that our concentrated focus, but that's kind of the happy outcome. I can't tell you how many Christian parents over the years have said to me, you know, I don't care if my son grows up to be a doctor or a lawyer or, or works uh, at, at, uh, in, in other kinds of uh, work. I just want them to be happy, right? Just want my kid to be happy. Want, want him to grow up. Now, of course, when they say that, they're, they're not thinking that they would be happy as a serial killer, right? So there, there are limits, right, to, or, or a sphere within which we would say, yeah, okay, uh, I, I want my kid to be happy, but I want them to be doing something decent in, in the process. But that, that idea of, of happiness, of course, is a really elusive one. Um, and we know this instinctively. We know that you can't just uh, set your mind to being happy, making that the primary goal of your life, and everything's going to turn out well. Um, but I'll, I'll quote an expert anyway, all right? So I was uh, doing some research for this sermon, and I came across... Uh, this work by Celine Suge. Uh, it's an article that she published, published in Positive Psychology back in July of this year, and it's called The Pursuit of Happiness is Not All That It's Cracked Up to Be. A fairly intuitive title. It, the subject matter of the article is pretty self-evident from the title, but um, she notes, obviously, that pursuing happiness cannot become uh, can become a paradoxical self-defeating proposition. And now I quote what she says. She writes, the paradox of pursuing happiness often comes with an expectation of what that happiness looks like and a standard of how we should feel when we achieve that happiness. It can likely become a never-ending self-defeating cycle. The more you go after it, the less you get it, right? The more elusive it becomes. It's just one of those challenging things. Now, you would, you would think that when the call of God comes on our life to follow Jesus Christ and make faith in Jesus a priority of our life, the question of our life changes, right? It, it changes from what do I want to do with my life to what does God want to do with my life? And if we've embraced Jesus as our Lord and Savior, that question has changed. And we're, we're no longer seeking the self-directed life where I get to do what I want, how I want, where I want, when, why, when I want, and with whom I want. The question changes to, I want to follow Jesus' marching orders and what is He leading me to do? But, we still find ourselves beset with the ideolatry of happiness. It's hard to get away from it. In fact, what happens is we spiritualize it. We will say things like, if you follow God's will, you will find yourself in the very center of God's delight. You will find yourself happiest when you're following God's will. In other words, 
How do I know when I'm living into God's will? I feel happy about it, right? I feel good. I joy. In fact, Fried, Frederick uh, Beekner, one of my favorite authors, if you Google Beekner's most famous quote, Google will cough up this quote without hesitation. This is Beekner, and it's good, but I, I want to unpack it. Your vocation in life is where your greatest joy meets the world's greatest need. I'll read it again. Your vocation in life is where your greatest joy meets the world's greatest need. If we could unpack that, it would be like your, your calling, your true purpose in life. It, you know that you're fulfilling your true north in life when you're in line with your greatest joy and it's meeting the world's greatest need. That's the best of all outcomes, right? The, the problem is uh, some will misread Beekner because Beekner wasn't necessarily saying uh, just go for what makes you happiest and you'll, that's where God's call is. He, he wasn't saying that. But the challenge that we have is people take the idea of joy and they turn it into happiness. See, Beekner was saying your vocation in life is where your greatest joy meets the world's greatest need. Joy is not necessarily happiness. Joy often is something that we possess in the midst of great hardship. Joy is not the absence of trials or hardship or pain or suffering. It's the presence of God in the midst of that. But people take Beekner and they run with it and, 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 and we tend to think, uh, in fact, we use our sense of satisfaction or happiness as a sense of God's call. Um, I, I, I hear people spiritualizing their decision to leave a church or to leave a ministry vocation. It's just not feeding my soul anymore. And, and the idea, of, you know, I don't have to unpack it. You know what, you know what I mean. Um, that's just, I don't know, bogus. It's really bogus. It's not helpful. And enter John the Baptist. This is where the story of John the Baptist comes in. Because, listen, John the Baptist was not living the dream. I mean, he, he was out there dressed in, in clothes of his own making, eating locust and wild honey, and preaching a repentance for the forgiveness of sins, and, and preparing people, and he didn't even fully understand what God was doing until it was unfolding in front of him. He didn't have all the answers up front. John the Baptist had a hard ministry. And it ended when he was incarcerated by Herod and then beheaded. That's, there's no heroic ending to John the Baptist's life. And even in the midst of this, even in the midst of it, while he was in prison, he sent Jesus a message and he said, are you the one or are we supposed to be looking for someone else? John the Baptist lived a life of pain and uncertainty and isolation. This was not a man who you would hold up as the poster child of joy, much less happiness. So I think there's much that we can learn 
from the life of John the Baptist about following God's will. And and I want to propose to you tonight that we can live confidently and consistently into God's will. And John the Baptist exemplifies three ways that we live confidently and consistently into God's will. The first is seen in verses 19 through 25 of John chapter 1. We live confidently and consistently into God's will by understanding our personal mission. Now, John did understand his personal mission. Let me read verses 19 through 23. We'll start with those verses. And we, we can be clear about what we are and what we are not. And that's, and that's basically part of what we see about the personal mission. We, we understand what we are and what we aren't. John said, uh, the, the Apostle John writes, Now this was John's testimony when the Jewish leaders in Jerusalem sent priests and Levites to ask him who he was. He did not fail to confess, but confessed freely, I am not the Messiah. They asked him, then who are you? Are you Elijah? He said, I am not. Are you the prophet? He answered, no. Finally, they said, who are you? Give us an answer to take back to those who sent us. What do you say about yourself? John replied in the words of Isaiah the prophet, I am the voice of one calling in the wilderness, make straight the way for the Lord. There's no shortage of opinions on who we should grow up to be or what we should be doing for Jesus. And uh, let me just, I, as I was preparing this message, I, I just had to put myself back into the home of John the Baptist when he was growing up and imagined Elizabeth, his mother, who was an older woman when she had John. Uh, so she may have been the oldest mom on the block and, and she's sitting with the other mothers and they're, you know, they're kind of uh, sitting around having tea and talking about their, their children growing up and, and Elizabeth's friend, Matthias's mother, I'm making this up, okay. Uh, <laughs> Matthias's mother uh, says to Elizabeth, you know, Matthias has really taken a liking to my lentil soup. In fact, I think it's his favorite. Does Johnny have a favorite meal? Elizabeth looks and says, well, he's developed quite a taste for bugs, actually. (laughs) (laughs) You know, especially locusts, and he he likes honey. Oh, the the honey, that that amber honey that that Levi sells at his delicatessen down the the street? No, no, he... He kind of likes it straight out of the beehive, especially beehives and hollow logs. You know, I mean, you, you got to imagine that John was on a trajectory that just was not the same as other kids. And uh, not, not Elizabeth's preferred future necessarily, but she knew, right? She knew from the start that John was going to be different. She knew that he was going to be special. It's just that she didn't think he'd be that special. And so it's, it's a challenge because people have opinions on how we should grow up and what we should be doing. And um, in, in their day and time, there was this overarching messianic expectation that had been in the making for several centuries. The Jews had come back from Babylonian exile when Cyrus uh, was the Medo-Persian king and he showed them some kindness and all these, ex, these uh, folks uh, made the the trip, these exiles came back to Israel and built the temple and they were getting established. Just when the, the Greeks came along and, and uh, they were oppressive in their own right and then 
Antiochus Epiphanes came along and he bitterly persecuted the Jews and just when they thought they had overcome all of that opposition the Romans come along and they oppressed the Jews and finally finally they were to the point where they were longing for their Messiah who they imagined would be a political leader to get them out from under the oppressive hand of Rome and lead them back to the dynastic superiority under David and David's descendant. That's what they were looking for. They were looking for political, military liberation. They wanted to be Israel in the greatest sense all over again. And here comes John the Baptist, and he's not the Messiah. Well, I guess he's kind of a disappointment. We don't even know who he is. He's not Elijah. They had these weird ideas that Maybe Elijah was going to somehow literally come back. And, and, um, uh, and, and then they thought, well, maybe it's the, the prophet. They had this idea uh, that there were two kinds of messianic figures. There was a prophet and there would be the, the true anointed one who would be like King David, who would lead them out militarily. Um, but the prophet would come along too. And Elijah, or were they the same? See, there were just a lot of confusion misunderstanding regarding the prophecies concerning the Messiah. But they were all expecting the Messiah. Uh, but they weren't expecting it that way. And they certainly weren't expecting John the Baptist to be the precursor to a Messiah like Jesus. Their expectations were kind of messed up. But that's kind of the way it goes. We have callings on our life that don't always make sense to other people. My mom and dad would have never imagined that I would grow up to be a Protestant pastor. They were devout Catholics. And they, they would have been happy if, if I had never married and, and become a priest. Not that they weren't happy with my wonderful wife, Diane. They were, and, and my kids. They were, of course, very happy with the grandkids. But... but um, ministry in the way that I was doing it did not meet their expectations. In fact, one of the last conversations I had with my mom when she was still lucid, she said, I pray every day that you'll come back to the Catholic Church. So the trajectory of my life took a very different uh, direction than, than my mom and dad would have envisioned. Sometimes that happens with, with us, but God has calls on our life. And um, there's, there's cooperation from the church. There is that. There is the church that comes alongside and recognizes those ministry gifts. That certainly happened uh, with me. But the Bible says that Christ gave himself apostles, prophets, evangelists, pastors, and teachers to equip his people for works of service so that the body of Christ may be built up. Jesus gives these gifts, and it doesn't always make sense to uh, those who are nearest and dearest to us. I remember when I was um, first getting underway with my walk with Jesus and I was being discipled by a man named Skip Hathaway. Skip was the associate pastor of the church I was attending at the time and we would spend a lot of time studying the Bible and reflecting on God's uh, teachings about different things and, and uh, he was sharing with me uh, how to present the gospel to people so I could help lead people to Jesus. And it was a really great relationship. And then one day, out of the blue, he said to me, Chuck, you have ministry gifts. 
you're, you're going you're gonna to become a, a teacher and a preacher. And uh, when he said that to me, I laughed. I laughed in his face. I said, you're crazy. That's not going to happen. That's just not going to unfold for me at all. And, and that's, that can happen with you. There, there can be people who can come alongside you and they'll see something in you. They'll see a ministry gift and they'll call that out. And it, and it may take you totally out of your comfort zone. The, the first time I preached a sermon, I was up all night before. I was tossing and turning. I could not sleep a wink. And I, I drove. Uh, it was in, in San Diego. It was at the Marine Corps Recruit Depot. Our church had a, a worship service there. And, and that was a nice context for me to really bomb. And nobody would care because they would all, they were in boot camp. They were just, they were happy to have somebody with a pulse. So it didn't matter how bad I did. It just got them out of whatever else they were going to be doing. So they were very thankful uh, to see me standing up there bumbling and stumbling through sermons. And I did. I, I bumbled and stumbled through several. Um, but I remember saying to myself when I was driving there in my yellow Ford Pinto, I said, God, I, I could never do this. This is horrible. I would, this is way too stressful. I can't handle this. Um, Sometimes leaning into God's call creates great discomfort. And I cannot imagine that John got up every day and said, ah, another day of preaching and baptizing and, and dealing with these religious leaders who think I'm a heretic. I would imagine that it was pretty tough. But it is what it is. Living into our personal mission isn't always easy. And it doesn't always come with the accolades and support of everyone around us. But being faithful to God is the first step of living confidently and consistently into his will. And John the Baptist exemplifies that to us. We see a second reason, uh, by or second way by which we live into God's will and that's by recognizing God's activity. John did that too, verses 26 through 31. Uh, John, uh, the Apostle John writes, I, uh, quoting uh, John the Baptist, I baptize with water, John replied, but among you stands one you do not know. He is the one who comes after me, the straps of whose sandals I'm not worthy to untie. What strikes me in this reading is that among you stands one you do not know. And later in verse 31, we'll see, he says, I myself did not know him. I myself did not know him. Uh, we're talking about recognizing God's activity. You say, wait a minute, John, John, you were Jesus' cousin. You, you two were only six months apart. What do you mean you didn't know him? John did not know him as the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. He knew him as a goody two-shoes kid who never sinned. <laughs> In fact, when, when Jesus came up, John said, hey, I need to be baptized by you, you know. I mean, he recognized that Jesus was a righteous person, but he did not recognize him as the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. He did not recognize him as God's Messiah, the one who existed before him. 
not until the moment he baptized him and saw the Spirit of God descending on him in bodily form as a dove and heard the voice of the Father saying, this is my beloved Son, listen to him. It wasn't until that moment that John knew who Jesus was. I did not know him. He knew him, but he didn't know him. In fact, here's the weird thing. The weird thing is that God was doing this in plain sight. Um, the next day, I'll pick up verse 29 through 31. The next day, uh, John saw Jesus coming toward him and said, Look, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. This is the one I meant when I said, A man who comes after me has surpassed me because he was before me. I myself did not know him, but the reason I came baptizing with water was that I, he might be revealed to Israel. In his book titled, God Hides in Plain Sight, How We See the Sacred in a Chaotic World, Dan Nelson tells the story. Uh, Dan was a, a professor of creative writing, and he told the story about a time when he was in Bombay, uh, he's American, and he was in, in Bombay teaching a creative writing class to a group of uh, local adult students in a YMCA. And in Bombay, the YMCA is very Christ-centered, almost like a church. It's a very uh, church-like kind of environment. And he was there as a follower of Jesus to help these adults uh, engage in creative writing and, and writing kind of spiritual pieces. So that was, that was his thing. So he's there coming down the hotel, into the hotel lobby, and there's this guy there playing the piano, and he was playing Fur Elise. Um, this classical piece by Beethoven, and he, um, he recognized it as the piano piece that his oldest son, who's 10 years old, uh, played at his first piano recital. And it just took him back to that space, made him feel like he was at home, you know, created those warm uh, feelings, and he said, oh, isn't that nice? The next day, he came down into the lobby again, and the piano player's playing the piece that his daughter played at their first recital, the very same recital. He thought, wow, isn't that a coincidence, you know? And, oh, isn't that wonderful? It reminds me of, a, reminds me of my daughter. And then he thought to himself, wouldn't it be wild if I went, came down the next day and this guy was playing something that reminded me of my wife? <laughs> well, that afternoon, as he was teaching his creative writing class, he was um, talking to one of the adult students who was... Uh, reflecting on the subject of his story, and he, he was talking about who he was as a young follower of Jesus and this great man who had discipled him and taught him all about what he, what he learned uh, about Jesus as a, as a young follower of Christ, and it turned out to be his wife's father who was a missionary, uh, and uh, it, it, it blew him away. And he, and he said... Um, my purpose in telling these events is not to tell you that I believe in magic. I do think that coincidences occur, but I also believe that grace goes before us in a way for God to say, welcome, I got here before you. I've been expecting you. That's exactly how I felt. I was alone, feeling like a Martian, a little bit afraid, and I sensed God saying to me, see, you're with me, and you're going to be okay. God shows up 
if we have eyes to see and ears to hear and a heart to understand. God is actively involved in the world we inhabit. God is doing things. And John the Baptist recognized God's movement. He didn't recognize everything all at once. It was sort of a progressive unfolding. And that's kind of how it happens sometimes. We pray and then unbelievably, right, unbelievably, God answers the prayer and we go, wow, that was, that was really crazy. <laughs> That's more than a coincidence. You know, you know where you, you just have to sit back and say to yourself, wait a minute, God did that. I didn't do that. That must have been God moving in a, in a really powerful and special way. Uh, when I uh, served at George Fox University, one of my colleagues wrote a piece on spiritual discernment in which he talked about the three stages of spiritual discernment. He said that in spiritual discernment, we start by attending, we tune in, we pay attention, we, we become more sensitized to God and the things of God, and then we mind, we, we recognize what we see for what it is, God's bonafide activity, and then we obey. So there's attending, minding, obeying. This is part of living the life of the Spirit. And what keeps us from discerning correspondingly is inattention. Sometimes we can get ourselves so um, distracted by other things that we just don't pay attention. I think of the parable of the sower. In the, and and uh, Jesus, especially that with the seed that falls among the thorny soil, right? And uh, it's the cares and the worries of the world. We get so distracted uh, by other things, we're just simply not attentive to God or the things of God. Uh, and then there's unbelief. That's another reason why we don't always see. Now, not unbelief. You're all here. You all believe in Jesus. I believe in Jesus. But we're talking about maybe a second level unbelief, the kind of unbelief that manifests itself in a lack of expectation, where we just don't think God's going to act. We pray, but we really don't think there's going to be an answer. We go through the motions, but we don't really think God is there. So, it's, it's, it's this low-grade unbelief that can keep us from seeing God's activity all around us. And finally, there's disobedience. You know, the, the Israelites had the hardness of heart that be, beset them the whole time. But it's not just the Israelites, it's the church. We, we, we can have the same stiff necks that the children of Israel had. We can sometimes get really bent on doing things our way. And we can, we can sanctify it by using all the right God talk, but we can, we can actually not have an obedient spirit. We can actually be living in a state of disobedience. Think about the people who came to Jeremiah back after the Babylonians came in and they, they ransacked Jerusalem. And they, you know, so we're talking about right at the end, the final stages of exile to Babylon. And there's the rabble that's left behind and Jeremiah is among them. And they, and they came to Jeremiah after they assassinated Gedaliah, the governor who they left there. And, you know, things went from bad to worse. So, so now they're an open rebellion against Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon. And they, get, they come to Jeremiah and they say, 
Jeremiah, could you pray to the Lord for us and tell us whether we should stay here or whether we should go to Egypt? And whatever, whatever the Lord tells you to do, that's what we're going to do. And Jeremiah goes and he prays to the Lord and the Lord tells him, yeah, bad idea to go to Egypt. That'd be a really bad idea. In fact, here's what's going to happen. You're going to go back and you're going to tell these people it's a horrible idea and they're not going to listen to you and they're going to go to Egypt anyway and they're going to die there. Things are going to go really badly for them. Nebuchadnezzar is going to come right after and bring his army all the way down to Egypt and they're all going to die right there. So Jeremiah went back to the people who had said so pietistically, just tell us what the Lord's will is and we'll do it. And Jeremiah did what did what God uh, what they asked and then did what God wanted and he said not only are you not going to believe this you're going to go anyway and you're going to live in open defiance and do it anyway and you're going to die in Egypt and guess what their response was well you're lying you're not of God God didn't tell you that Baruch did because I don't know he's weird and and so they all took off and went to Egypt and uh, things didn't go well for them there I'm sure but that, that, again, illustrates how easy it is for us to start out by acting like, yeah, we'll do whatever the Lord wants, but in the, in the end, there's disobedience. All of these things, inattention, distractedness, unbelief, disobedience, these things sneak in on us and keep us from being able to recognize God's activity in the world. And yet, when we do, when we understand our unique ministry call and when we understand God's activity, we're aligning ourselves with John the Baptist and that ministry uh, of uh, following God's will. There's one final way that we do that and that's seen in verses 32 through 34 and that's by being a faithful witness. So we understand our personal mission, we recognize God's authority and then we serve as a faithful witness. John the Baptist did this. Verses 32 through 34. Here's what John says. Then John gave this testimony. I saw the Spirit come down from heaven and as a dove and remain on him. And I myself did not know him, but the one who sent me to baptize with water told me, the man on whom you see the Spirit come down and remain is the one who will baptize with the Holy Spirit. I have seen and I testify that this is God's chosen one. John did not keep his mouth shut. He opened up and he was ready to speak out. He was quick to testify. And uh, we, we need to do the same thing. Standing up and being faithful uh, witnesses doesn't necessarily mean that we're totally adequate or that, that we've got this long track record of success. Um, I, I think of... Um, Acts chapter 4. I, I just want to read uh, this text from Acts chapter 4 where Peter and John are used by God in such a mighty way. So Jesus, just stepping back for a sec, Jesus did not pick the sharpest tools in the shed. He, he, he picked people who were making themselves available to God. Warren Wiersbe said the best ability we can give to God is our availability, and that, that is absolutely true. Um, and if you make yourself available to God, God will use you. Look what he did with Peter and John. So they, they were preaching Jesus, they were arrested, they were taken in by the religious leaders. Reading from Acts chapter 4, 
verses 5 through 13. The next day, the rulers, the elders, and the teachers of the law met in Jerusalem. Annas the high priest was there, and so were Caiaphas, John, Alexander, and others of the high priest family. We're talking about the, the head honchos here. Uh, it, it would be an intimidating group to be in front of. Uh, they had Peter and John brought before them and began to question them. By what power or by what name did you do this? Then Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them, Rulers and elders of the people, if we are being called to account today for an act of kindness shown to a man who was lame and are being asked how he was healed, then know this, you and all the people of Israel, it is by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, but whom God raised from the dead, that this man stands before you healed. Jesus is the stone you builders rejected, which, was, which has become the cornerstone. Salvation, Peter says, salvation is found in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given to mankind by which we must be saved. When they saw the courage of Peter and John and realized they were unschooled, ordinary men, they were astonished. And they took note that these men had been with Jesus. I'm absolutely committed to theological education. I've given my life to it, been at it for a long time. Uh, I've, I've taught for years. I serve as seminary president. And, and let me tell you, you don't need seminary to be used mightily by God. You don't need any of that to be a faithful witness. God will give you the grace you need in the moment you need to say the words that he has deemed that you say at that time. Now, having said that, if you want to come to Western Seminary, we would be happy to sign you up. But that is not, that's honestly, honestly, I say that kind of half-joking. But the truth is, we, we just simply need to make ourselves available to God, and God will lead us down those next steps. But this is, this is what it's about. It's about being faithful. Whether we want to admit it or not, most of us have grown up in a world and within family systems that have cultivated the belief that the best life that we can live is a self-directed life, the pursuit of happiness, doing what we want, when we want, how we want, where we want, and with whom we want. And sometimes we even spiritualize that as Christians and we say, well, if I'm following God's will, it's going to make me happy. And I know if I'm not happy, it's because I, I just need to keep pursuing God's will. Because when I find what God has for me in life, I'm going to be truly happy. You know, that may, that may have some truth if we understand setting aside happiness that what God is inviting us into is a life of joy, which is experiencing His presence and experiencing the wonderful fulfillment that comes through living into his purpose for our life, despite the trials, the tribulations, the challenges, and even failures that come along with that, even living in the dark and not fully understanding what's happening, like John the Baptist, being an outcast, not always fitting in, 
and maybe seeing things get worse before they get better. Following Jesus is not for the faint-hearted. The life of faithfulness isn't an easy road necessarily, but Jesus never promised an easy road. But he promised the road to eternal life and eternal glory. He promised us that because of Jesus and his death, burial, and resurrection, the best is yet to be, but sometimes that best is on the other side of eternity. But he invites us into this life of amazing fruitfulness in which he and we get to partner and we get to do the most amazing things to set the stage for eternity that we will not fully understand until we get to the other side. But that's the life that he invites us into. And we can do that confidently and consistently by following the example of John the Baptist. He's one of the great heroes of faith who has exhibited for us a life of faithfulness and I invite us as followers of Jesus to lean into that and to find out what that means for us. It's not about happiness. It's about faithfulness. So let's pray together and ask that God give us the wisdom to know how to do that in our own lives. Father, as we open your word, we recognize it as the truth. We recognize that John the Baptist led a life of amazing faithfulness and we're grateful to you for the life that he led. We're grateful for the way that he paved the road for Jesus, our Lord and Savior. We thank you for his willingness to turn to you, to call out to Jesus even when he had questions and doubts and misgivings. And we pray, Lord, that you would help us somehow to find the truth about what it means to live into your will. Help us to know what that means for us. Help us to understand what our ministry calling is. Give us a clear sense of your leading and direction. Help us, Lord, to recognize your activity around us. And help us, Lord, to be faithful witnesses testifying of your amazing grace and love and the power of your gospel. In all of that, Lord, help us to be able to end our lives and hear that marvelous declaration, well done, good and faithful servant. You've been faithful with a little, and now enter into my abundance. Father, give us your guidance and help us, each of us in this room, each in our own unique ways, with our own unique gifts and callings, to recognize you in the way that you're inviting us to take that next step of faith. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen.